Hello, everyone, and welcome to another horrific chat. Uh, this segment, of course, if you have seen them before, is where we talk to independent creators, various creeds, mediums, uh, get to know a bit about them, their works, and obviously their journey into horror. So tonight I'm joined by uh, author Andrew Nyberg, who um, I believe it was uh, one of my dodgy posts on a Facebook group you recently. Yeah, um, yeah, it's very rare I post on social media. I've got really bad and no meant to be like plugging and stuff, but... I'm terrible at that sort of stuff. <laughs> and yet I'm trying to encourage people to like come on and promote themselves, and I hardly do it myself. So uh, it was great that you reached out, and obviously, pleasure to meet you. Welcome to the show. Um, how's life treating you? Ah, first off, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been going great. Uh, you know, um, I, I'm a teacher, and the semester just ended, and that's literally one of the single highlights of every single year. It's better than my birthday. It's better than Christmas because it means that um, I won't be in a classroom for for three full months. And uh, you know, at that point, uh, that's when I spend the most time focused on writing, on my kids, uh, on uh, some video gaming. Uh, you know, the things that uh, you know, the things that I'm, I'm paying the bills to be able to do. Yeah, um, that's that's a big thing. Like, well, um, like the moment I've got a I'm working two jobs because uh, a company I worked for last year, document management place, asked me to come back. I'm like, well, I can do Saturdays if I help you. And sure enough, Saturdays have turned into bank holiday weekends. And can you stay later? And <laughs> I had another stream on earlier with on a friend's channel. And they're like, no, I have to leave. I have really important stuff to do. Yeah, it's nerdy stuff, but it's really important. You know, <laughs> you, you got to understand <laughs> what's the point in living, you know, and working yourself, the you know, slogging away if you're not going to enjoy life. You know, it's... Uh, do you think a lot of people forget that they get so caught up in uh, being successful, their career, or you know, stepping up the ladder that they actually forget that there's a life to live? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, if, let, let's say you do the the standard thing and you work the stereotypical eight hours a day, you know, five days a week, you know, that's uh, you know, that's what thirty, almost thirty percent hours? of your yeah, forty hours, you know, and you know, some people work six days. You know, some people you know have a second job. Some people have, um, you know, they they work even longer hours. And so, you know, you're working what thirty, forty, fifty percent of you know every single week is, is given over to that. And um, you know, first off, if you don't enjoy that, that's already a lot of your life you've consigned over to uh, just misery. <laughs> um, and then, you know, if you do like it, even though. If it's not the thing you love, then, um, you know, you still have to find ways to to take care of things you're really passionate about. Yeah, um, I find that what creators that, that I did have some questions, but, you know, anyone who knows this show, we know those that will love tangents and just go on <laughs> a random, random little path, see where it leads us. But um, a lot of people, I think, they either tie their creativity to their career, you know, especially in this, they think they have to be mega successful you know, top 10 best-selling author <laughs> to enjoy writing or like I need you like me getting on camera and talking a lot. Things that, you know, some of them think they have to be like top 10 streamers. That's the only way to enjoy a creative outlet and it must tie in with their career. But it is possible. And we were kind of just having a wee chat before we went online about having a fulfilled life, you know, and balance. What pays the bill doesn't have to take over your entire life. Oh yeah, and it doesn't have to be your creative outlet. You can marry, you know, you can separate the two, have a different outlet for your creativity, and it doesn't have to even make you money as long as it doesn't cost you too much. It, oh, it's still rewarding. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if nothing else, it's, uh, you know, even from the writing point of view, it's, uh, it's only been recently that I've gotten, you know, real traction with my writing, you know, the, mm. the novel just came out. It's my, my first, like, you know, like really solid book out there before that. I mean, I wrote poetry for 17 years. Um, and, you know, I mean, I've got pretty, pretty nice little publication record over time, but uh, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's poetry. It doesn't exactly pay, um, but I enjoyed every minute of doing it. Um, you know, and uh, my, my wife loves to paint. Uh, my kids definitely, we, you know, we have art time whenever we can, just because I think, I think it's just a healthy part of your daily life to carve time to focus on just expressing yourself. Um, and, it, you know, your creativity can be any form that you want. It doesn't have to be writing or a traditional medium like art or music or something like that. But um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I think we like to feel like we have voices that we like to put pieces of ourselves fit like literally into the world in some sort of tangible form. And, you know, it, it definitely, it, it, you know, really, it should just be the, the thing that we do for its own sake. Um, you know, sure, it's great when you also tie it into other things and, you know, maybe part of your work is creative. But, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes you just want to want to make something just to make something. And, you know, you just want to speak just to speak. Yeah, and that's it. And this channel is all about we need more creators out there, especially when you've got uh, I'm not a fan of the corporate sludge, you know, the just these. <laughs> Oh. gray boring people that seem to be in charge of all media for some reason that includes writing as well like the big five publishing houses film has to come from like one tiny group of studios um oh well, i can, you know i've talked about this ad nauseum so everyone's <laughs> anyone's on now sick of tired listening to me about <laughs> it but the people feel that it's it's so hard that if you don't make a success that you can't try it and say like we've had um our segment horrific tale featured over 100 you know stories at this point and uh, quite a few of them at the end are just people that aren't necessarily authors or writers they've just had a short story and they just wanted to put it out there and that's that's all hard you know they do that to say thank you very much and then never hear from them again they've kind of got their outlet and that seems to be enough is that all someone has to do to be you know be considered a creative or release that creative energy I mean, I'd say, you know, I'd say so in a way. I mean, you know, there's people who are creatives who, um, you know, they never get their work out there. Um, you know, it's just something they do for themselves. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, I, I think that everybody has sort of a different um, a different balance that they want between the, the, the public and the private aspects of their um, their creativity. Um, so, you know, um, you know, sometimes somebody is just going to, you know, they'll get home and they'll make their dinner and maybe they'll just sit there and, and uh, you know, sketch while they eat and they crumple it up and throw it in the trash by the time, you know, along with the leftover of their meal. They never mm -hmm. dream of sending it out somewhere. I mean, I don't I don't see how that's tangibly different as being, you know, in terms of creative practice than somebody who is actively working to send their stuff out there. I mean, you know, there, there's definitely measures of success that we can kind of delineate. You know, I, I'm in academics, for example, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, they definitely have various tiers of how they recognize creative success. So, you know, um, a book through a nationally distributed publisher is one, um, you know, uh, a book through a minor publisher is another measure of success. So I'm having a handful of magazine publications or online publications or running your own podcast, um, you know, is, uh, you know, something that uh, a lot of people would consider. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, th there's definitely going to be different ways to decide how much we want to be putting our work out there. But I think, hmm. I think the key is that 
I think it's healthy for everybody to embrace that creative side. And, you know, to be a creative, a quote unquote creative, I think the regularity of your practice is really the, the main de defining point. Yeah. And people get bogged down. I think sometimes with these metrics and that's what puts them off because they think they have to achieve <laughs> and even just the act of creating self can be mentally stimulating, can like spark the imagination. That's, I think that's what makes us so unique as a, a species, our imagination. Mm -hmm. And the more we foster that, and I worry that in today's society, and it's something I want to broach on, but that's getting kind of stripped away because everything's laid out in front of you. And I worry, especially generations below, I think we're lucky enough that we can step away from the internet and the social media because it's, wasn't always part of our lives, but someone that knows no other way. Um, I do worry in the society, you know, where we're going without it. Um, there's there's Chris just saying uh, hi, and even if it's just for half an hour, whatever else, you know, you don't have to be a bestseller. I think that's it. You don't have to worry about success, if that makes sense. It's the act of creating, mm -hmm. like like you brought up, Andrew, is important. That's that's the bit that makes you sense of achievement, even if it's a sketch drawing. Um, oh yeah, no, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. Um, you know, one thing that I think is really important about, um, you know, hobbies, about creativity, and things like that is when we sit down to make something. Um, you know, first off, you know, we're we're doing it uh, with a sense of focus. You know, we're we're you know basically we're kind of stripping away a lot of other things. And you know, I know for example that um, you know even in um, a non-modern life. I mean, it's so easy to get bogged down in things like the stresses of work, you know, anxiety about families, anxiety about money and, uh, you know, other problems like that. Um, mm. You know, we tend to have a lot of thoughts that are cycling through our heads at any given point. And, uh, you know, a lot, some of them are going to be positive and some are going to be negative. But, um, you know, then you start throwing in um, these highly enticing distractions, things like, you know, um, like, like social media feeds, um, where, um, you know, in a lot of ways, they're, they're far more, in a very basic sense, stimulating than a lot of other activities. You know, um, you can literally sort of, just for example, feed your sense of humor on mm -hmm. social media just by scrolling through memes and other very, you know, very short um, punctuated, you know, comedy sources. And so, you know, you can entertain yourself with this rapidity of, uh, of stimulation. And so when we do sit down to create one thing we are deliberately doing is slowing ourselves down, brushing away a lot of those things that are constantly eating at us for our attention. And then we just pay attention to this little space in front of us. And, you know, it's something that's that's it's, it's part of us because we're creating on it, whether or not it be, you know, um, you know, painting, whether it be a screen that we're writing on or a, a notepad, you know, or a guitar that's in our hands or something like that. Um, doesn't matter what format it is. But, you know, we basically kind of create this own little world that is just us existing in it for a little while. And I think we need that kind of that kind of refreshment because um, otherwise we're just on all the time. You know, we're, we're constantly buzzing with, you know, stimulation with, you know, with uh, entertainment. And I think, yeah, I, I think, you know, having our ourselves focus and create our own pace of experience for a bit is crucial. And there's Adam's at his hobbies supplement his profession. So, of course, it's important to explore creativity. Yep. Um, that's what's good. And you, you brought it up uh, very well. Our social media, I guess, short form content, you know, instant stimuli. <laughs> Do novels 
and stories still have relevance and a place. It's easy to think that, you know, like it started out five minutes was considered short form content. Now it's down to a minute. It's probably going to be 30 seconds before too long. You know, the text <laughs> span of people is getting shorter. Do do novels, long form stories, do they still have a chance out there? Is there is it a dying art? Or do you think so, we're gonna get it back? Uh, or is uh, it completely misrepresented by what we maybe we see in front of us and it's not the real story? So I'd actually definitely say that I, I don't think it's a dying format right now. Um, you know, I do think that it does have a lot of competition in sort of um, in sort of the broad scope of, of mass media. You know, when we're thinking about, um, you know, if you want to if you want to create something that's going to reach 100 million people, um, you know, we're, you know, we, when we start talking like Harry Potter level audiences, Stephen King level audiences, where just everybody has encountered it, explored it and things like that. So, um, you know, that does have, I think, um, a legitimate difficulty with longer form works right now. I think um, I think it's extremely challenging for, for novels to do that, but that doesn't mean it's not important. I mean, you know, after Harry Potter, we had things like the Hunger Games that sort of exploded out into a really huge readership. But that being said, you know, one thing that I've noticed really lately is um, in the last couple of years, there's just been an absolute explosion of novels in the indie writing scene, um, you know, just, uh, you know, over the last few months, I've joined in, uh, you know, a bunch of horror related forums and other indie writer forums, and they are unbelievably lively. And, you know, there's there's authors out there that are actively regularly selling thousands and thousands of copies of books, um, you know, certainly enough that, um, you know, it's uh, not what we would consider, you know, failed endeavor. Um, and, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, I know, for example, um, you know, the, the press that, that put out my book, Wicked House, um, I mean, we've seeing really solid sales um you know all of the authors you know his books have come out through there have gotten really good attention from readers um this there's a lot of people who want that experience and i think to some extent that experience is sort of harder to market on a much broader level like you know especially on like a corporate level oh um, that's that's the death of any creative and, oh honest. yeah once once they get involved and um, yeah and and so, yeah, like, you know, Barnes and Noble, Walmart and Target and all them. I mean, there there is a, a clamp on a lot of uh, the presence of, of, you know, exploring novels. But at the same time, um, yeah, I think there's an, a, tr a tremendously supportive independent community out there that's just absolutely ready to devour books because that idea of just immersing yourself in your imagination of a world that patiently unfolds on pages in front of you. I think uh, it's a kind of experience that no other medium really provides um, because it's a relationship between ourselves and a reader and, sorry, and the text. We're not just being fed mm -hmm. the information like we are in a movie or, um, you know, a virtual yeah, And that's, that's where the great discussions, always the movie versus the book. We've done mm -hmm. quite a few of them in the show. Um, you know, what we might have thought in our heads. And that's one thing a lot of our returning authors we we jump on and we do movie reviews or book reviews <laughs> you know just for you know a bit of a laugh and uh that's that's what we we'll always bring up you know my what i thought in my crazy head wasn't the same as somebody else's crazy <laughs> head you know and that, that's the beauty of it you know it's mm -hmm. that's imagination um and that's what makes for all and that's the problem with corporatization everything has to fit into a box 
So mm-hmm. if we marketed and sold a certain way, um, in fact, uh, two two of my good friends who jump on here, you know, we we're going through the Clive Barker series of movies at the moment, mm-hmm. and uh, like every time the studio gets involved with his projects, they don't know what to do with them. <laughs> it's just it yeah. just shows, and it's so painful sometimes. And it's like, come on, that you know, if you've read, even read is, and a lot of his books are short. You know, they're short stories, so it's not as if a corporate exec you can read it the weekend. So it's not as if you have to like hurt yourself to read the source material <laughs> and know who you're dealing with. Um, you know, like we've covered loads of stuff, but that's that's the beauty of it. Um, I thought it was a bad thing. What you have thought of appears on screen. You go, oh, I didn't think it was going to be like that, but I kind of like that. But also like what I thought too, you know. It's oh yeah, no. Um, you know, I, I, I've watched uh, quite a few adaptations that turned out pretty <coughs> Sorry, differently. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. Um, that turned out pretty differently than I would have expected. But um, I was, you know, really interested to see this particular artistic interpretation. Um, one thing that uh, I find really odd about especially the movie industry and this might sound uh slightly controversial in some ways is that um there's this really curious popular sentiment to things like you know reboots and restarts um and now here's the thing about it though here's the thing about it um sorry sorry so what 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 what, 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 i'm awake i'm awake honest honest. on the one hand the problem they always run into is the sensibility from which they're rebooting them that they're rebooting them because they're trying to update them to match the times and so you know one of the best examples is the absolutely horrific and i know this isn't horror but it's it's like it is because it was just Painful and unpleasant. Horror can be real life sometimes. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah. Uh, the 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 reboot they attempted of the show Willow on Disney Plus. Um, you know, the old one has attained really a bit upset. of a cult. Uh, uh, look, we've got nerds in the chat. Just careful what you say. I don't want to get mobbed. <laughs> yeah. Oh there's, no, there's no. two in particular here. They might jump on us. <laughs> just so, just careful where you go forward. <laughs> well, I loved the original movie. I grew up with it. I'm I'm a child of the '80s, and so you know, it definitely played a particular role when i was young but um you know one thing that really struck me about the reboot was the forced sense of humor where you have an established um world it had its own tone and voice but you have extremely modern jokes being made by all of the characters um you know they could easily have been on any television show um you know set in 2022 um and it was extremely jarring to me, and it felt like that was a large chunk of the reason that it was being remade, was they wanted to sort of create this new, hipper version that fit modern aesthetics. Now, the reason I brought that up, though, is, you know, I, I, I've always also been really interested in theater as well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, theater has remade and rebooted and reperformed show after show after show to great and tremendous effect with you know tons of memorable interpretations and performances over over the you know centuries actually uh, so actually one one that's absolutely classic that people don't realize as a remake which he covered little shop of horrors oh yeah absolutely um no it's uh there's and, two completely different shows both um the first one's a classic stage show both still watchable both a lot of fun but completely different interpretations. Absolutely. And, you know, one of my favorites was always The Thing. Um, in fact, I have a, a huge poster of The Thing right over my computer mm-hmm. here. You just can't see it. But um, I can't. I, that, the 2011 one's supposed to be a prequel. Well, I, I, I still haven't watched it. I just can't bring myself to do it. 
So I, I was referring to the, well, so you can, here's the thing about watching that movie. I'm going to confess that I overall like it, but that's kind of in some ways the teacher in me, because mm -hmm. um, I spend a lot of time teaching creative writing. And so I, I also, and uh, I, I look for what's good in the piece. And then I like to think about pieces that you can improve upon. And so I, I love flawed movies actually, because I can sit there and I can kind of brainstorm. Okay. So what, you know, what could we have done differently? How could this have played differently? And I, I love that kind of engagement. Um, but so the thing that killed the thing though, um, the remake or not the remake, sorry, the prequel is um, they ditched the practical effects at the last minute. Um, the studio, like they, they had wonderful, wonderful effects you can see it in the featurette that that was released to help promote the film and um they're straight out of john carpenter i mean it's all these physical puppeteering um really cool creepy images the studio panicked because they thought it felt too like it was like it was made in the 1980s and it's like yes that's exactly what they were going for they wanted to capture the same creature from the original and um you know and so instead they took everything that they'd done uh, they threw it out halfway and just slapped cgi over everything and you know otherwise though you know the story itself they you know it's a, you can tell it was lovingly made that was one that actually had tremendous respect for the source material they were very detailed in their recreation of the norwegian sets um you know uh they 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 they, they really worked to have it fit seamlessly with the original film but then every time the thing emerge emerges, you just you, you just want to cringe because the the CGI just doesn't fit with any of the other stuff that they were doing, and it's it's almost heartbreaking because you can watch it and see, oh my gosh, they were so close to doing something that could have been really really cool, and you know studio meddling. Uh, absolutely I have, I have asked this it. question loads of time. When has a studio interfering with a a movie been a good thing? <laughs> yeah. It's, like I'm, never I'm ends sure, well. Yeah, I'm sure that if we were to dig super deep, we'd find one example where some guy had this really great idea and was like, you know, I see a problem here. Otherwise, though, you know, it's uh, it's much more likely to end with a giant steaming pile of crap being taken on the film. So, <laughs> been sitting in a short story for twenty years. What's that's that's not as long as some of my things I've <laughs> sitting on the shelf. You know what I mean? Just right for <laughs> It, that's well that's part of the problem with creativity especially the horror genre you're putting a bit you're putting a bit of yourself out there but you're putting a, the dark part <laughs> and uh you mentioned like the mainstream bookstores probably barnes and noble have got a horror section like right to the back you know behind curtains you know <laughs> step no further here you know or, or lose your soul but you're never going to see it in what in those supermarket books that's all generic bland oh yeah yeah yeah, no. it's, it... or I will say the medium of the airport bookstore. <laughs> that is a classic example of blandness. Oh yeah, when they're like Absolutely. an airport bookstore, that's bleh. If it's possible for it to ha have a complaint registered about it, it will not be there. Yeah, um, is that a real? That's a really difficult thing, though. Um, especially if it might like your profession, for example, people would expect you to be very milk toast sort of nice bland and we've had the conversation about nice creators with no horror horror is some of the nicest people i've ever met you know that's the the greatest like, thing about it but like the people's perception of oh i wanna how can you think up with such things or how, how can you put that out there and then that can actually do harm against 
your life because people just can't. And we all have those thoughts. Uh, and I want to deny the do. You know, they're the ones that worry about. You know, they're the ones that act on them because <laughs> they repress themselves so much it becomes like a pressure cooker. But has well, that I mean, been a has that been an issue? The type of material you create so far, no. Um, like the only the only issue I've ever run into is that um, I do you know work with some consciousness over um, prejudices about um, genre writing in general in the academic mm-hmm. world. Um, you know, for the most part. Um, you know, while, uh, you know, I, you know, I do write some pretty harsh horror. Um, you know, a lot of my horror is, uh, is emotional horror. Um, I deal with a lot of things like, um, you know, trauma, loss and that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, I, I haven't delved with my own writing into some of the more extreme horror elements. Um, you know, there, there's, there's some books out there that definitely would probably come across differently in an academic environment. Um, so we've we'll probably know, had them uh, on the show as well. Which I'm uh I'm more than happy with. Um you yeah. actually got quite an eclectic mix. I was having a look at your sort of catalogue. You know, like I said, your poetry, your and but you've you do sci-fi. I've, I've seen about a paranormal or I've seen like what would be described as adventure thriller. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You've you seem to cross the whole uh broad spectrum. Do you do you normally just wander? Or is it just a case of, oh, I want to try this? Or how does that all come about? So there's a couple different ways, honestly. I mean, to some extent, um, I literally sometimes do just sit down and just be like, okay, so I want to write something. What do I want to write tonight? Um, and, you know, sometimes, like, I, I watch a lot of movies. I read a lot of books um, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of different directions. Uh, you know, I don't particularly do romance. Um, you know, I just, I can't get into it. Um, and, uh, you know, but otherwise, I, I don't really have any barriers about things that I will and will not engage with. And so, you know, the ideas tend to come in almost any form. And, uh, you know, I'm usually pretty interested in chasing down um, whatever felt inspiring at the time. But, uh, but no, so... You know, I, I will admit, though, at the same time, I do I, I do try to have unique entries in my catalog. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't um, like actually one of my biggest things is that while I'm not necessarily opposed to the idea of writing a sequel, um, I'm not looking to start franchises. Um, you know, uh, the, the book that I, I've got out now um, is uh, a standalone Um you know, in theory, there's an ambiguity to the ending that some folk have asked me about. And, you know, they'll ask me, you know, did he do that so that you could set up a sequel? And, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, my answer is no. I, I find ambiguity to be unsettling. <laughs> so, do, you, do you think that's a problem as well? The way media has gone in entertainment, where everything has to be spelt out. And there's no room now <laughs> for the audience member or the consumer to make up their mind, the customer, you know. Or an ending's left. Like that's that's one of the things about horror. Horror was a staple of the ambiguous ending. Mm-hmm. You know, that's always the thing of did they, didn't they? Is the killer alive or the dead? Is the did they survive? Did they not survive? Or one of my favorite genres, warp reality. So mm-hmm. was it a dream? Was it a reality? But now it seems to be this, I don't know, coddling of you know, people aren't given enough credit for having intelligence. It's uh- and it's actually quite insulting the way people are talked to now like the babies even the language has changed that's really uh and you've probably found it like you're in one of the fucking bedrocks of it you know main culprits let's be honest of this baby language of oh 
I, I, I just find it frustrating, but does that ruin creativity that now people expect to be told it and if they're not, the, they're confused and worried? Or, can, can we get away from that? So, uh, like, there's a couple questions embedded in that. Um, the does it ruin creativity? You know, I, I don't know that I would go that far because um, if nothing else, you know, uh, one of my favorite stories of all time, I think it's one of the most impactful and meaningful stories is by Shel Silverstein, um, The Giving Tree. Mm-hmm. And um, I've read it to my kids, you know, tons of times. And, you know, literally it makes me cry half the dang time because it's just such a brutally honest depiction of, um, you know, of, of some of the difficulties of parenthood and um, just you know, how painful it can be. Um, so, I mean, you know, you can do tremendous, tremendously creative things with that kind of, you know, stripped down, limited toolkit. But the problem comes in that um, it does tend to limit variety. It definitely limits experimentation. Um, and it also um, can kind of cage in how you handle some of the, um, the concepts you're working with. Um, you know, that's part of, I think, though, something that's drawn me to um, both horror and science fiction, that um, those are two genres that in no way have particularly pretended to be um, sort of targeting all ages simultaneously, that Mm -hmm. um, there's a presumption going into both of those in a lot of cases, unless it's like stamped all over the cover, that we're talking to an adult audience. And so I think um, I I think that sort of takes off um, the gloves a little bit for us, um, you know, and and it gives us a bit more freedom to uh, to tackle some more difficult material. Yeah, um, I don't think people realize, and it's obviously something that's brought up a lot in this show, is that horror is so widespreading. Everyone just thinks slasher, that's it. Mm-hmm. And it couldn't be further from the truth. And we have had loads of wonderful examples of just movies crossing uh, just all sorts of topics. Um, is there a sense of freedom that you could not, you could have so much variety without actually leaving the horror genre? Do you know any other? genre that provides that like you mentioned science fiction but you're very tied down like science fiction to me seems to be the rules of the technology mm-hmm. where a lot of especially science fiction books um mm-hmm. arthur c clark you know he's one of my favorite authors um but still science fiction grounded and they have to explain the technology and then maybe the society isaac asimov's another one you know he he's stuck with the the societal but you're you're kind of grounded. If you step away from that, you can't really go into like sci-fi fantasy. It's very mm-hmm. difficult. Where you can have horror fantasy, you can have horror sci-fi, you can have horror romance. You know, there's um, uh, what is it? Swim fan would be considered that, or um, Poison Ivy. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's uh, probably loads of other examples. Just sorry, my tiny brain only thinks it so much at once. It's the joys of doing this live and not pre-recorded with scripted answers. I can't sound clever. <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, you can... But does horror give us that freedom that uh, you can't explore things that like you said? Uh, is there more of a sense of accomplishment being a horror author sure. as opposed to another genre or nothing well, was locked in so i don't know if i'd say more of a sense of accomplishment because um i mean writing excellently in any genre is tremendously challenging um you know i mean heck honestly writing um an 
excellent, you know, excellent romance novel um, mm -hmm. would be a tremendous feat. Um, and they do exist. That I would mean, be a tremendous feat. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure they do exist. I'm sure that there are some e excellent craftspeople who are able to sort of understand the genre, what it's meant to do, and be able to tweak all of its details to maximize those effects. And I think that's impressive no matter what genre you're doing. I mean, one of the reasons I write is because I love the idea of being able to move people to feel and experience things with my work. Um, and so, you know, whatever form you're doing that in, if you're successful, um, I really do admire it. Now, that being said, I think um, horror and its sort of literary cousin, magical realism, um, both have um, some abilities to um, break expectations and transgress in ways that, um, you know, a lot of other genres will find more difficult. Um, so, you know, you mentioned, for example, that um, science fiction does tend to um, find itself locked in by the need to adhere to some sort of at least reasonably consistent scientific um, development. So, you know, one of my favorite series is um, the uh, Leviathan Wakes series, um, The Expanse by James uh, A. Corey, or, you know, the, the two authors under that name. Um, and, uh, you know, it's 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 a wonderful story. It's very well. Oh, that's the uh, one that that, that the not so long ago the TV show. Yeah, the Expanse. The yeah, Expanse. Um, um, after the third season, I kind of struggle with that. It does. So season get, four it starts shifts. to pass half up in nuts because they're they're struggle with the whole political power base. Mm -hmm. So they can't come together because they have to have that, and then it just ties itself up and can't go anywhere because everybody has to be at loggerheads, and then you can't really. Mm -hmm. It's well, good at the beginning, but then it gets really exhausting. Well, and, you know, if you were, if, if you if you kind of push past the jump from three to four, it actually does resume a good stride after that. The, the mm -hmm. authors wrote it as three separate trilogies that just tell a single linear story. Um, so books one through three are one story, four, five and six are another seven, eight and nine or a, a third. And mm -hmm. then they also just fall in a chronology with each other and have overlapping characters. But like um, four, five and six or their own narrative arc that's entirely in a lot of ways independent of the others it's not like you know i mean they still have the proto-molecule and all that stuff you know but um mm -hmm. they definitely stand uh they're a different storytelling in them yeah they're almost um, forgotten about by season three they've forgotten about the proto-molecule which is supposed to be mm -hmm. the major threat the story because it just and, got bogged down with the like i said the infighting and the politics and the mm -hmm. backstab and it's like i'm not watching a soap opera <laughs> Well, you know, what a space opera, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the kind of devolved into a soap opera, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's where I had a struggle. It's like uh, no, that's, you can that's see fair. that a hundred times any other anywhere else. But if you if you went to the trouble to create a fantastical world, why devolve it into that? Well, I think that's one of those things that's easier to execute in books than it is in, in film or TV show. Um, you know, film and TV show will almost invariably find itself needing to focus almost exclusively on characters. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, uh, character drama is always the hallmark of, you know, of soap, soap operas and that kind of thing. And so when you lean into the character drama as your main propelling uh, force, it's really easy for it to digress, especially as you spin it out season after season after season. And it's harder and harder to balance between ideas and characters. Um, the, the books are a lot more successful with that because mm -hmm. they can explore at a lot more length, um, you know, the science and information backbone of the narrative. And it's, you know, it is, it's interesting, you know, science, and it's um, something that shapes almost every scene 
of the uh, of the books. Um, you know, every space battle in that series is entirely shaped by physics um, and interesting physics. I mean, uh, you know, I've heard from a lot of people who, uh, you know, are both interested in, you know, legit science and then also read those books that um, they're extremely accurate in the kinds of challenges and questions they're considering. But that also tells you something about their creative process going in that um, they had to always ask that question, does the science work? And, um, you know, I think um, horror does have to have internal consistency. You can't just, you know, arbitrarily have weird shit happen. Um, no, well, I mean, I've, I've reviewed but... enough movies where they've done that. And um, we are the most uh, horror fans, I think, are most forgiving because we know we're going to get like nine out of ten, like horrible movies. Just, <laughs> like, absolute. Uh, but it's, like... it's mainly due with the visuals, you know, because of the budget constraints. But when it's a bad story. Mm -hmm. That just takes it right. Um, fantasy doesn't seem to that's a genre really can't get physics right. Um, the especially with travel, like a Game of Thrones was terrible for it. One minute they're halfway across the continent, oh. then they're there, like two hours later. Um, I didn't, I couldn't even bring myself to watch that silly Rings of Power series, but apparently they did the same. They swam across, you know, walked across Middle Earth and swam across an ocean in a day, and you're like, really, like. Where at least science fiction has that discipline, mm -hmm. and even though you're constrained, maybe that discipline helps gives the foundation for storytelling. So, is there something to be said about maybe having that as well? I'm just playing devil's advocate, you know. Oh no, um... I like good stories. At the end of the day, that's that's my thing. Doesn't matter if it's a well-told story and a told story, and I am gripped, and you make me care about the characters. Job's done. No, I mean, one thing I one thing I always tell folk, you know, especially people getting into writing um, is that, um, you know, when you start off with a blank page, um, well, you could do, you know, you can do absolutely anything, um, you know, mm -hmm. you, you know, and there are no rules. You can say whatever you want. The second you start putting words on the page, though, you begin establishing constraints for yourself, um, you know, that, uh, you know, your, your opening scene is going to create rules for this character. You know, you'll introduce your character's desire, for example, you know, you'll start thinking about, OK, what what am I expecting people to sympathize with or 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 hate, perhaps? But you start establishing these rules and expectations. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, um, you know, basically, once you start establishing those rules, you now have limits that you have to adhere to. If characters act wildly out of their um, established, you know, um, roles and dynamics, you know, it's jarring for the readers. You know, maybe you have a reason for it in the plot, but it's got to be clear. Otherwise, um, you know, your, your, your readers can be like, well, that doesn't, you know, this character doesn't make sense. I don't understand what this character is trying to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to want them to do. Or, um, you know, I don't understand what the stakes are. These are a lot of questions that people are thinking in the backs of their minds when, books stay, you know, don't remain consistent to what they're trying to build from the beginning. And science fiction, I think, does get a little bit of benefit from the fact that it already knows, you know, you know, your writer probably already knows going in that there are going to be rules about how they're going to compose, you know, putting limitations on yourself and then figuring out how we can stretch them and push them while also working within them. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that, that's the hallmark of a lot of, um, you know, some, you know, honestly, ingenious creativity. That's how we end up with a story that's truly disarming because it feels familiar, 
but then it does something wholly unexpected in a way that completely makes sense. Um, you know, that's ultimately some of the most compelling effects. It what makes it's what makes a lot of the best twists in plot, where um, you know you read it and you reach the plot twist and you know you should have seen it coming. You know, it hits you immediately. Oh my God, I, I missed all of that. Um, mm -hmm. But it's exactly the rules that were being established for you all along, and you just didn't pay attention to them right. Um, now, I saw somebody... Or the story has taken you away that you mm -hmm. know, it's subtly there. So it's almost a good thing because then you can go back a second time. There's nothing better than go back a second time and reading over just to look for the plot points. Oh, and you enjoy the story, you enjoy the ride the first time, and then the second time, like, oh, there it is, there it is. Ah, right. And Absolutely. You almost get better value for your experience because going over the same story again but with a different perspective well um i've always said this about lord of the rings anyone that struggles to read you know i mean it's a it's a hefty book <laughs> i've always said break it down into three parts read the story ignore the songs <laughs> go back read the songs ignore the story and then go back and read the whole thing and it comes together uh so much better um, and like I said, even about rules, one of my complaints has been the homogenization of monsters. Mm -hmm. Vampires are no longer vampires, werewolves are no longer werewolves, zombies are no longer zombies. It's all this looks the same, acts the same virus thingy. Mm -hmm. And the rules are then thrown out thrown out the window. And then you can't there's no challenge anymore. Well, yeah. Um, I think to some extent, um, as monsters um, have become subgenres, um, so you know, you know, when when vampires first started in literature with Dracula and things like that, I mean, they they, they were a common folk tale. Um, you know, they cropped up in a couple of different forms or resembling that form in uh, in, in various different books. Um, but, you know, for the most part. They were a monster, you know, they were this evil thing that, um, you know, preyed on people. Werewolves are kind of the same way. It was a curse. And mm -hmm. now, though, as stories have proliferated and those, you know, reusing those monsters, um, you know, I've, basically you've ended up with a chunk of readership who buys those books, not because um, of the horror but because they want to be those monsters. Um, so, you know, at that point, you know, once you have, uh, you know, the Anne Rice Vampire Club, for example, um, you know, you have, um, you have people who no longer want the downsides of being a vampire. And literally the whole point of the vampire mythos, um, or at least it's, it's uh, sort of the, the Judeo-Christian origin of it is that idea that you're sacrificing the light of day and a lot of your sensual pleasures, like, you know, eating and drinking at things that yeah. aren't blood for eternal life. You know, that's the idea behind it, that um, you then become this thing of darkness that's really kind of consigned to misery. You've just alleviated yourself of one fear, the fear of death. But, you know, a lot of people, they're really interested in this idea of immortality. And so, um, you know, they, they no longer, you know, they're like, OK, but can we have this? But without, you know, all the blood drinking and the sunshine loss. Um, so you get sparkling Which isn't the vampire, vampires. You know, the yeah. something else. And yeah, it's, exactly. Back to the game, this baby language, just molly cuddling. Uh, like I said, this whole, um, like I recently met with um, Stephanie Myers. <laughs> that, that just that broke me, if I'm honest. Oh, absolutely. I'm just like, nah, I'm out. <laughs> and, and, and she, she no knocked more. out both vampires and werewolves in the same series. Um, yeah. Uh, now, 
Somebody did say, um, I, I will say somebody asked a question down at the, the bottom. Yeah, we have a couple about... here. I was uh, trying to get them, but I don't want to interrupt. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, yeah. Um, I actually need to go back a minute. So uh, Chris was like, how did you first come to work with Wicked House Publishing? So Because um, that, that's I... one of the hurdles, I think, for uh, anyone that's wanting to get published is, Will they tear my work apart? Will they do this? Or I'll always have this manuscript that'll never get anywhere. It's a big fear <laughs> or like a hurdle. People think they have to they'll never uh, get over. So uh, a couple of things I'll mention just to set this up. Um, so first off, folks should know this. Uh, the the Mobius store um, is actually my, my third attempt at a novel. Um, I had um, an early novel I wrote uh, when I was in my 20s, and um, it was a big sprawling beast of a book that, um, you know, really it's it's been tucked forever into a drawer and will never see the light of day. Um, and I really hope it stays that way. Um, but, you know, I was kind of learning a lot about writing in the process. Um, you know, I was trying to figure out how you tell scenes, how you have characters that um, have progressive arcs across a substantial strength, length of material instead of trying to do it in short bursts like in a short story. Um, but, uh, and then I wrote a young adult book that actually got some traction with agents. It just never got, uh, it never got taken um, by a publishing house. And um, I still periodically tinker with that and send it out. Um, you know, who knows if it'll ever see the light of day. I'm, I'm actually pretty happy with that book, um, but uh, I haven't had a chance or the inclination for uh, recently to really sit down and try to figure out if there's anything I could do to make it better. Now, so that brings me to uh, the Mobius store. And um, first off, that book did take a couple of years for me to write. Um, you know, I did some research up front. I got really interested in folklore and mythology, especially Eastern European mythology. Um, and that kind of fuels uh, a lot into the narrative. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I spent a couple of years writing it, uh, marketed it for a little while um, with agents. And then, um, the pandemic hit, and uh, you know that really derailed a lot of the things that I was doing. And um, one thing it did, though, was um, it, it it created a lot of anxiety for myself, for my kids, and things like that. You know, um, and uh, I ended up channeling that into a lot of writing. And so I, I actually wrote a second, no uh, or I guess it's technically my fourth novel, um, which is coming out at the end of the summer. It's called Gala Talk, um, and. Uh, once I finished the uh, the main draft of that, I started marketing both that and the Mobius store out to agents and publishers and things like that. And one day, um, you know, as I was researching various different markets, um, I stumbled across the uh, an advertisement on Facebook for Wicked House Publishing, and um, they were uh, new press at the time, and um, they had uh, one book out. Uh, sorry, they had. Um, they were they just they had, they had just announced um, their first title, uh, Mr. Nightmare by Joseph Biani, um, which mm -hmm. is a, 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 a great book. I really liked it. Um, and uh, they had another uh, title, uh, Monsters of Mulligan Hollow, I think is the title. Um, and it, that one was due out um, as well. And so. Uh, you know, I, but I kind of, I kind of liked the the feel that they were presenting themselves with. So I was like, you know what, let's uh, let's check these folk out. And um, as far as the um, actual submission process goes, um, you know, uh, if if you uh, do a little bit of you know research into publishing and you know getting an agent and reaching out to presses, you find there's kind of a standard manuscript uh, packet that you're expected to basically have on hand. Um, you know, there's a query cover letter um, that has a series of conventions 
conventional steps that you're expected to follow. And one of the things that a lot of folk are looking for is just simply the professionalism of your query letter, that you know what it's supposed to do, that you're able to present aspects of your work clearly and succinctly, things like, um, you know, a pitch line. Um, then you also need to be able to sort of say, you know, what are the comparable books on the market that, um, you know, you'd be expecting to tap into? Um, you know, what's a one paragraph summary that, you know, that boils the uh, main plot elements down into a digestible form? What are your writing credentials? Um, do you have a marketing plan? Um, so this is kind of a very fixed set of conventions. You then typically also include with that, um, and this varies from publisher to publisher, but um, there's going to be a summary of the book, and it's uh, you know it'll usually be anywhere between um, I don't know 200 500 words to 2,000 words, depending on who you're reaching out to. But basically, you're expected to cover every major plot point and um, development in core character arcs. Um, and you know again, it's a test of the clarity of your vision for the work. Your publisher wants to be able to read through that and see that you know what you're trying to say with your book or you're trying to present the readers because if you don't know that's going to suggest that the text itself is going to be problematic for them um mm -hmm. and then on top of that uh, i actually I, i'll admit i don't remember the sample length that wicked house requests um you know uh you'll, you'll see that a bit that varies as well some well also you've got wicked house on your um website yes mm -hmm. but yeah check out the description folks click on the link visit the website give andrew some love <laughs> You can check out Wicked um, House or plug, 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 plug. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they're really fantastic. Um, I've, I've actually really enjoyed um, all of the books that they put out so far. I'm actually, you know, it's funny because I went into them a little bit blind and I feel like I, I won the lottery with them. Um, you know, they've been absolutely fabulous as a publisher. Um, the quality of the books they're putting out has been outstanding. Um, you know, I'm really proud to have my books appearing in, in their in their in their calendar. Um, but yeah, the last thing you need is a sample. It runs and you some folk will ask for five pages, some for 10, some for 25, some for the first three chapters, from some for the first 50 pages. The biggest thing is whoever you're sending your work to, um, whether it be Wicked House or somebody else. And by the way, Wicked House is in fact accepting uh, manuscripts right now for consideration. Um, but, uh, you know, basically go to the publisher's website, very carefully read their guidelines. They're usually very explicit in what they're expecting and do not deviate from those things. Um, look up, you know, if you're if they ask you for a cover letter, simply Google what are conventions for, uh, you know, a cover letter for a novel. You know, if they're asking for a synopsis, what are conventions of writing a synopsis for a novel? Follow the conventions because it's part of the professionalism, it's part of presenting yourself clearly. Um, but yeah, um, but yeah, then beyond that, though, um, you know, basically I had this really weird month where um, I got replies from both um, Cactus Moon Press about my my book Gala Talk um, mm -hmm. first, actually. And, uh, you know, I was already super excited because um, I also, you know, I, I've been promoting uh, Mobius Store extremely heavily because it's the one that came out first. But I also really love the story I told in Gala Talk. Um, but uh, yeah, then like three weeks later, I got the, uh, the Wicked House acceptance as well. And uh, it was the weirdest feeling because... Um, you know, I, I've been writing a while. I had, um, you know, like I said, two novels, one of which I think is just a failed novel. The other, which was a good book that never just found a place that but it meant is it to be. Failed? Um, mm. I try to, you know, I don't like that word. And I think it puts people off because, once again, it's back to this presumption of I must succeed. <laughs> and See? therefore, creativity is only an option of its instant success. Where you might see it as a field novel, but did that 
exercise and putting pen to paper, metaphorically speaking, putting it together into a complete work and taking you through the process of going from an idea in your head to actually, here's a novel, whether it's sold or not, do you really consider that a failure? I mean, when you so, go to move on, you know, what I mean, it's that story you mightn't be happy with, it mightn't have got the traction. Oh, but you not only the story and putting it together, but putting that into something tangible. Because how many pipe dreams are out there? How many wish upon a star folks are out there that think they're the greatest and they're, you know, the right one day or it's in the back shelf, but you've actually taken that step to putting a thought and an idea in your head into something physically tangible. I personally wouldn't consider that a failure. Well, I mean, it depends on what you're looking at, you know, with the word failure. Uh, yeah, well, that's, you know, that's, that's what I'm How do you consider that a failure then? Because what what's your metric well, for success? Because it's, to me, everything I've said there, that's succeeding. Well, I, I don't find failure and success to be um, antonyms. Um, you know, one thing that I think is really crucial to remember is that success is the time you got through after a series of failures. All those failures were part of the process of getting mm -hmm. to success. And, you know, I actually, I, I, I actually like to embrace that word um, because um, I find that if we realize and acknowledge and say, you know what, this didn't work. This didn't do what I wanted it to do. I need mm -hmm. to figure out where it didn't work, why it didn't work, and how to prevent that in the future. When we take it apart, you know, it's, it's like talking about a failed engine at that point. Um, yeah. You know, so that's neither is, good um, nor bad. And it's part of this culture as well. What I would consider a failure is you put that together, it didn't work out, and you're like, huh, not my fault. See, uh, I, I would fault. call that a uh, waste. See, that, like, I wouldn't call it a failure. I'd call that a waste. I mean, I definitely do not think that writing that, it was a sprawling 750-page book. Um, and uh, I definitely don't think it was a waste to do it. I learned so much. She is right, don't mind getting into semantics, because you know, this is uh, actually <laughs> oh, an interesting yeah. conversation. Um, generally, when people get into semantics, it's very antagonistic. But this is actually <laughs> a good example of getting into it, because um, it's both from a positive aspect yeah. and... Yeah, that, that's actually a good thought. Yeah, not wasting your time. It wasn't a wasted effort because that's, once again, people get so bogged down about this thing not taking off and then the mm -hmm. stop. And would you agree or not that the important thing about being creative is not the stop, even if it is a hobby or an outlet? Well, I think so many folks just like, oh, hit the first hurdle, nah, done. Oh, I think it comes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation where, um, you know, I think creativity just should be part of our day-to-day -day lives. Um, you know, it could be 30 minutes a day. It could be a couple times a week. But, um, you know, yeah, I mean, whether or not we get accolades or praise, I mean, you know, if we're being creative for praise, then we're not really thinking about what we're supposed to be getting from creativity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I love you know, I, I love that people seem to be really liking the Mobius store. Um, you know, I am I, I am proud of that. It does make me happy and it's exciting to have that happen. But, um, you know, at the same time, um, 
you know, even if uh, even if people hated it, um, you know, I had a blast writing it. Um, yeah. I really enjoyed working on this book. Um, you know, like I said, it took a couple of years to do the main writing of it. I, I you know, did a lot of rewriting as well, revisiting all of these characters. And, um, you know, I, I mean, you learn about yourself in doing this, too. Um, you know, especially horror where you're kind of pushing your own boundaries. Oh, absolutely. Kind of it's the, I, mean, I think it's the best. Houndstown, the best genre. And I've said before, I could not spend all, like the amount of hours doing this. And the background and the admin and the reaching out and the networking and the scheduling. <laughs> if I didn't enjoy it or enjoy the genre, I couldn't mm-hmm. do it. I couldn't spend that amount of time. That's why I don't, uh, I've kind of found myself drawn away from other things because I, I don't have that enjoyment. Yeah. I know that's fair. That's, to me, that's not a waste of my time because I feel fulfilled, you know, because. I'm seeing a return, you know, there's something being created for the effort put in. And that alone is worth it, like you said, with your book. But yeah, if people enjoy what you do, even better. It's just a little bit of icing on the top. And I think people have to appreciate that. Don't you agree that the appreciate your thing for what it is? The success kind of comes afterwards. And appreciate the success maybe as a separate thing, but not as a requirement to create. Oh, I, I entirely agree. I mean, I think uh, I, I think a lot of the best books out there and really, you know, a lot of the best anything out there comes when the creator made them simply because they wanted to. Um, and, you know, that was, you know, it was something that regardless, you know, even if they were like living on an island um, and had no Internet, no mail, et cetera, you know, they would have sat down and written that book, you know, written that poem. Um, you know, written that song, regardless of whether or not they had an Actually, audience. Good little segment, another question. Now we can bring Kathleen's question up. <laughs> Sorry, folks, I'm not ignoring you in the chat. I'm just trying to, you know, not just be like ba 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 ba. Answer this question now, and then not give give Andre a chance to breathe. But um, seeing you mentioned poetry there, you know, as a poet, can you tell us more about the constraints help you shape a story, a poem, a message? Because poetry is a tricky one. Um, I've to me, my poetry is very emotional. And if mm-hmm. I'm not a particular state of emotion getting it out, I, I just can't willy-nilly make up rhyming words. It, to me, it feels silly. <laughs> so, yeah, my, my, my poetry is very not rhyming. Um, I do things like internal rhyme. I love assonance, consonance, alliteration, and that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't do a whole lot of fixed fixed meter and fixed, uh, fixed rhyme work. Um, but that being said, so... With, uh, with with poetry, um, first off, you know, I, I, I actually feel in a lot of ways that um, poetry has less constraints than a lot of other forms. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, the one constraint that I see in poetry is whether or not our reader is going to understand it. Um, and, you know, from there, um, you know, at that point, I'm trying to pull out all the stops not to... Um, you know, hide or complicate meaning, but to make meaning clear. Um, And, you know, I I find that more often than not, what I'm really trying to capture um, in poems is words, is um, ideas, emotions, or experiences for which the language does not already exist to express it. And so I'm trying to craft this single page or couple of pages where every single part of it is working almost exclusively 
to try to um, convey a singular idea or um, you know small limited set of ideas. So you know the audience that I'm I'm thinking about becomes um, you know the primary constraint. Is this going to be something that that they're going to access that, or am I going to create this dense web that's going to alienate them away from it? Or you know am I going to say um, what I'm going to trying to say in a way that's so stripped down and so basic that they don't really have a reason to read my piece as opposed to any other piece. Um, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, more so than any other genre in a lot of ways, I think poetry does require an understanding of, um, you know, sort of an idea of an audience, like a, per, you know, that, that we want to communicate something, um, and the text itself. Um, and so, uh, I, I think that's also partially because, uh, I hate to say it, you know, as much as I, I love writing poetry, I do find audiences are more limited for it. Um, you know, you don't have the quite mass explosion. You don't, you know, you don't get many Stephen Kings in poetry. No, it's um, very, very niche, isn't it? Um, yeah. Of, you know, I mean, what Chaucer, um, oh God, I'm, what's the one coming to the top of my head? Shakespeare, Spencer. Yeah. Was Shakespeare a poet, really? You know, he's a sonneteer. He, yeah. Um, more yeah, aspects, he, but uh, you no, know, I mean, his stuff was primarily geared, geared for the stage, you know. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. fair. Um, mm. But, you know, you have like Lord Byron, uh, William Carlos Williams, Robert Frost. You know, you have a handful of names that sort of rose to pretty, you know, household prominence. Mm -hmm. But um, Robert Burns, of course. Yes. Yeah, right. That's who, you know, you know, you get a name and like it's rattling about there in front of you. <laughs> mm -hmm. like, get, get down there. I need you. I don't need you up here. I need you here. So I can <laughs> let you out. <laughs> But, uh, but no, you know, um, with, with, you know, when I sit down to write poems, um, a lot of the times I'm not even sure I'm really sitting down to write a poem until I'm mm -hmm. actually into the process. Um, instead, it's kind of like I mentioned earlier, where I, I really do a lot of times just sit down and I know I've got time blocked off for writing. Um, and, you know, maybe I open an idea that I was thinking about earlier, or maybe I'm just starting fresh with a blank page. But, um, you know, I do just sort of ask this question, okay, what do I say first? Um, and when that comes out, um, or I get an idea that I need to start thinking about how to say it, um, you know, the decision about how to start presenting, it doesn't come until I start putting words on the page. Um, mm -hmm. You know, again, the constraints unfold from our decisions as writers, not from pre-existing conditions. So, you know, as we engage, you know, with that first word, the first sentence, the first line or first paragraph or what have you, um, you know, what we need to be doing is we need to be listening to the work we're creating and start thinking about, you know, what is this work starting to do? Where is it starting to take these ideas? Where is it starting to take this expression? So when you're putting your pieces together into publications, does the publication, each book, is that one thought told in many various formats or do you just go by poem by poem looking for an audience? Because that's that's where some a lot of poetry books I think can get a wee bit confused. Yes, the poem itself has an audience in mind, but the collection tends to not to. So now that you've brought that up, do you have that in mind when you create individual pieces? You're like, so, okay, how do I put this together into a collection that's going to reach that particular audience? Okay, so there's a couple different ways that that works out. Um, so first off, I do have, uh, I guess the best way to call it is, you know, sort of one-off pieces where I just sit down and I write a poem. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, a week later, I write another poem and then I write another poem some other time. And, you know, then, you know, one thing that'll happen, though, is, you know, after I've done that for a little while, I'll start to notice that some of the poems have some common commonalities with each other. You know, it might be stylistic. It might be their use of images or something along those lines. But also I start to develop some some groupings. Um, mm-hmm. And at that point, I then look and I start to, to be more serious about, OK, what do I really have emerging here? And, you know, if I only have like three or four poems, there's not too much to do with that. So and that's not really a starting point even for a book unless it's really compelling and I've not re- encountered that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, once I've got a body of poems that is sort of coalesced where I can kind of see enough commonalities that they're grouping together and, you know, I'm like, you know, maybe 20, 25 poems, you know, 30, 40 pages. At that point, I start to say, okay, I think I have a collection shaping up. So, um, first off, you know, is, you know, can I take what I have here and create a meaningful sequence out of them? Do some of these more naturally lead into others? Um, so I start looking to impose a bit of structure on it. Um, mm-hmm. And from there, um, then I start to ask, okay, what are the holes in the structure? You know, where are the gaps between pieces that I need to fill in with new material that's not been written yet? So then I do start composing poems deliberately to fit the collection. Other times I might make revisions to some of the existing poems to make them fit more fluidly with the other two. Um, but uh, so I do feel like um, I, I'm working towards an overarching cohesion to the piece, but um, at the same time, especially in the early phases, I write poems that um, you know are independent on their own. And then even once I'm late in the stage of a collection, I'm still writing other poems. They're just mm-hmm. not for that collection. I have other folders on my laptop. So it's not an I, immediate. Um, it's not an immediate concern. It's when it happens or when it happens, it's ready. It's very organic process then. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I've been I, I've been creating in various different you know genres, you know, poetry, fic- short fiction and novels for a long time. Um, and one thing that, you know, I decided early on was that I did want, you know, I basically decided I plan to always do this, that, um, you know, no matter what else is going on, I'll always keep working at stuff just because I like it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's a way I like to engage myself when nothing else is going on, if nothing else. Um, but uh but so at that point, um, that takes a little bit of the pressure off to be churning out regular books. And so, you know, for the first few years, though, you know, I mean, I have a few hundred unpublished poems. Um, you know, granted, they're probably not in a state of polish that would get them rapidly taken in journals if I sent them out. But, um, you know, they're seeds that I could work with. They're pieces mm. that I could probably build into something else. And, uh, you know, similarly, short stories. I have, um, you know, a folder of 30, 40 works in progress right now. Um, um, that, you know, some of them are more, I'm, I'm much more focused on, others are kind of on the back burner. Then I have, you know, the trunk that a lot of writers talk about, you know, pieces that I finished, but um, didn't feel like I could find a home for. And so I shuffled them aside and, you know, all of that stuff accumulates over time. And then, you know, at some point, you, you know, I'll start noticing, hey, you know, I've been writing about father-son relationships a lot lately in my science fiction. I wonder if I can start grouping these together. And so I'll start sifting through some of that old work. And suddenly, Mm -hmm. you know, you find pieces that um, didn't fit with anything before that have a new place right now. Um, You know, or maybe, um, you know, you you revisit one of those old works with this new context in mind, and suddenly you know how to revise it to make it new. Um, But I I think to some extent, just kind of steadily pursuing ideas, exploring, um, you know, as you accumulate material, you just, you give yourself more and more options for how to start combining those things into into larger pieces. So how often do you write then as a general rule of thumb 
Um, it varies a little bit. Um, so like, um, you know, um, starting about a month before the release of the novel, um, I did have to scale back on um, fresh production because, um, you know, I was doing the editing and revising for the book, also going through things like layout proofs and that sort of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm, an, I, I'm a full-time lecturer at a university, and so mm -hmm. I also had final, final grading to do, which is a, a lot of reading. Um, and, uh, you know, so uh, you know, then of course I have, I have kids and a wife and, uh, I like to make sure I'm making time for them too, as much as I can. Um, so, you know, sometimes it does get a little bit of a back burner, but for the most part, um, you know, I probably, I probably do, um, explicitly, you know, explicit, you know, writing time three, four times a week, um, you know, during an average week, um, during a busy, you know, a, a particularly creative work I'm writing every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and then during some stretches when I'm just absolutely swamped, um, you know, I do actually pull back just as a matter of self-care. Um, you know, sometimes you just, you know, even positive stress is still stress on your mind and body. And so, um, you know, you do cut everything out occasionally. So is it, um, would you say self-awareness has to be a major component? And that's the ties in with the discipline because, um, I think a lot of people think if we can just jump in and just blast it out in a week, that's it. It's all sorted. And then when it doesn't happen, the burnout or somebody like I'm terrible for it, I'll start and stop. I'm so slow. It's like I'll start a project and then it'll be months before I start again. And then it becomes being like, oh, I'm done this off. <laughs> and then I put it to the back burner. When so, do you have to tap yourself on the shoulder and say, okay, I put this in the back burner enough. I need to do it. Does there come a point? Yeah, um, there really does. Um, you know, because if nothing else, if you do take too long off from a project, you really can fall out of sync with it. So, you know, you really can be just distanced from it so that um, it's extremely difficult to get back into working on it. Um, it's not to say you can't, um, but you're increasing the challenge the longer you're out. Um, but that being said, uh, I, I, I like talking about writing as, as a discipline. Um, very specifically, I think it's the best word to understand what writing really is. It's a mm -hmm. lot like playing guitar. It's a lot like painting or drawing or playing a sport. Um, all of them are these learned skills that require assiduous practice in order to keep our skills sharpened so that when we need to perform, we're at our peak. You know, an athlete doesn't take six months off and then go play a major game. Mm -hmm. You know, they have to train and practice. Um, so, you know, steadily writing um, is a really important part of it, not because you're always going to be doing amazing work and you don't even necessarily need to be writing um, on a specific project that's like the project that's that's the meaningful one to you um, you know really any form of sequencing words organizing ideas um, can can you know help keep you sharp um, mm -hmm. so if you're the kind of person for example who's a lawyer and you're writing legal briefs that that writing still matters you know that's still part of the practice and just you know using language to produce ideas and communicate to other people um, but uh, you know typing emails even typing on social media can still you know if you're thinking about your writing you know if you're not just slopping down words as fast as you can um mm -hmm. you know if, if you're actually approaching with a little bit of craft you know you are keeping your shit self sharp but I, yeah i think um that's actually know, a good um that's a good uh, thought there to have you know an idea people maybe don't realize that you know instead of firing out the text speak on social media when you're putting a thought take a moment and compose it yeah 
think as um, if you're performing a short story, you just keep your craft, you know, going. That's a, yeah, I like that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're writing an email, you know, put mm -hmm. a, put a salutation at the top, write it in complete sentences. Um, you know, don't, uh, don't just like, you know, chop it up and, and get, you know, to, to get that idea out as quick as possible to move on to the next thing, you know, pay attention to what you're doing. Um, and, you know, I think that goes even beyond writing to a certain extent. Um, you know, this comes back to our earlier conversation about social media and um, sort of rapid fire stimulation and distraction that, um, you know, whatever it is we're doing, we should pay attention to it. Um, you know, you're going grocery shopping, you know, enjoy it for what it is. Um, you know, uh, you're writing an email to somebody, pay attention to it, do it as well as you can. You know, you're going for a walk, you know, don't, don't, don't be on your phone the whole time. Instead, you know, you're on the walk. You might as well look at I'm going to apologize you know, any, to anyone now that gets in touch with the show because <laughs> instead of, I'm usually point, you know, trying to think of things organized, keep things succinct so that, right, we're doing step A, step B, this is the time, the date. Here we go. Now they're just going to start getting flurry emails back. Hello and welcome to Getting in Touch with the Horrific Podcast. It is so wonderful to hear from you. <laughs> Three paragraphs later. We'll give it up. But I mean, in, in a very serious sense, though, you know, um, yeah. since uh, since the book's coming out, it came out, I've spent a lot of time on social media. You know, Books of Horror is one of my favorite, um, you know, you know, favorite, uh, you know, Facebook groups. Um, and one thing I've noticed is, you know, for the you know, if you send somebody a message either as a reply or, you know, you reach out to somebody through a direct message, you know, if you are a little more full in expressing yourself, people seem delighted by it. So, um, Funny enough, I've find that actually just with my interactions and there's authors that's because we've featured uh like 70 plus authors you know uh through one of our segments but a lot of ones that don't get it just can't communicate mm -hmm. like even by you know when is podcast how i do this um no <laughs> it's like what is that uh, what and you're gonna get me to read out something no <laughs> you know uh <laughs> when you ask somebody to send you an email and then they send you a a DM with how I do this or something. You're like, what? Well, <laughs> yeah. I'm lost. You know, it's like, <laughs> you. it's amazing the number of people that just, for some reason, can't grasp that simple concept. It's, it's a form of communication. Well, you know, I worked eight years as a, as a barista in a coffee shop. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that really stands out to me is there's, you know, there's customers who walk in and they're like, hey, how are you doing? And, you know, when you actually when you answer, they actually listen to your answer and then they respond to it. You get two beats, maybe, you know, you're, you're not like getting into a deep conversation, but those extra two beats of conversation make a world of difference in what's actually communicated there. You know, one communication, um, you know, like the. If, if you're actually paying attention, makes everybody involved feel heard and attended to. In contrast, you, you get other people who, you know, you're like, hey, how you doing? And they, they say, you know, large coffee. And, you know, there's an abrasiveness and an unpleasantness to the whole exchange at that point. Neither person mm -hmm. is getting anything positive out of it. That experience is a negative event. Um, and, you know, I mean, honestly, life is just too damn short for it to be full of these negative choppy experiences where our only goal is to get to the next negative choppy experience. Um, you know, if, uh, if I'm going to do it, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy doing it. I'm going to make, make it decent. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think just, you know, paying attention even just to everyday life and interactions is, is, is really crucial and something that's, it's, it's all part of this larger, you know, idea of just, 
you know, finding a way to better express ourselves, make our lives a little more pleasant on the day to day um, and just reduce the stress of all these things that are always chipping away at us by paying attention to where we're at right now. Or just get those dark thoughts out on the story format or poetry. And Oh, absolutely. Because it's funny. It's, I've yet to encounter a horror creative with a negative mindset. And yet we're the bad people. <laughs> we're the evil ones. Oh, it's yeah. Like, oh, in, in high yeah, school. Okay. And in high school, I was actually um, a vocalist in a death metal band. Um, and, uh, you know, for the most part, everybody assumed like I had to be this really violent person or that, um, you know, I had to love really dark things. Um, but it's like, no, I mean, the whole point is just to release negative emotions and it's an absolute blast to do it. You feel great after the performance. And, mm. uh, you know, I mean, most of the people I know who listen to or love heavy metal and stuff like that, they're all, it's, it's the same thing. You know, people assume that because of the, you know, the demonic in, uh, imagery that gets associated with a lot of it, that they're these dark, horrible people, but they're usually the nicest folk I know. Notice the eddies. <laughs> absolutely. A collection of eddies. <laughs> but I'm going to see them in July. I've actually, I was looking up a ticket earlier on just to, you don't get a printed ticket anymore, so I can't sit and stare at it. <laughs> like a typical mm -hmm. Iron Maiden fan. I have to call up the app and go, oh, I'm going there soon. soon. <laughs> I miss my little stack of yeah. uh, physical tickets. Uh, oh, all my stuff's gone now when, uh, when I moved. But uh, yeah, God, I'm on another tangent now. I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, it went out of my head. I had I had something already on and it's gone. But um yeah, this weird thing about uh horror fans and horror creators like, oh you're terrible people, you do this, you do that. And it's like look in the mirror, mate. You're the one knifing people in the back, you're the one um that spreads the nastiness, actual real life nastiness in people's faces where we're just uh, getting on with things. It's like this more, you know, culture war movement. They try to bring it into horror, and all horror fans are going like, "What? We we've dealt with this fifty years ago. Go away. We're already we're, we we don't care. What are you trying to do here? They tried it with um, the Hellraiser reboot. They tried all that winding people up and stuff. And I might have worked with other genres, but it came to horror and just defeated like a damn squid because like, no, we don't care. <laughs> well, I mean, I just I think find it hilarious. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think to, to some extent, um, one thing that, that insulates horror against that is um, we go into horror with an expectation of, um, of, of, of flaws. Uh, and I don't mean in bad storytelling. I mean, you know, most of the best horror has deeply flawed characters. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have, you know, sort of complex interactions and you know it's it's part of the genre you know you 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 hit it and you expect it to be there um and it's not goes as... out for a picnic it's a beautiful sunny day the by the lake we know it's going to go wrong we're just waiting for it absolutely absolutely yeah i mean yeah the, the sunnier and the the, the more uh, idyllic the opening of a horror novel the worse you know it's going to get um you know somebody just graduated and has been offered a delightful job and uh, you know given a brand new car as a gift you're like oh man they're screwed <laughs> yeah that's it you're yeah. in trouble die oh they're, yeah absolutely. they're smiling happy they're humming they're humming their favorite tune when they're humming their favorite tune you know they're doomed oh yeah absolutely <laughs> but no i mean you know 
horror just has, um, you know, I mean, it, 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 it deals with all aspects of society really fluidly. And, you know, none of them are jarring or shocking to see as a result, because, um, you know, it, it, it horror tends to explore the best and worst of us. Um, and then, you know, from the, the writing angle, I think, um, you know, sort of that coming back to that idea is, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes it seems like horror writers are just the happiest people and all. And, uh, you know, I think to some extent, you know, we produce this stuff because, um, you know, we, we are acutely aware that it's not real. In fact, you know, the whole craft behind horror is working hard to convince your audience that this could be real mm -hmm. um and you know when, when we approach it from that craft lens i mean um there's there, there's this there's, there's an almost inevitable distance between us and a lot of the horror we write especially when we get into you know genres like you know vampire horror creature horror you know there is uh, admittedly a certain brutal real world horror um that uh can you know i'm not sure that this would apply as as clearly to um you know i've been uh, I, i've done some since you know work as a slush reader for a couple of horror magazines and horror adjacent magazines i was gonna actually ask you about symposium oh yeah senior, are you still a senior editor at symposium yeah, um, you know, uh, basically, uh, you know, we uh, just put out um, uh, an, an issue with a theme of attention, and um, we're in the process of talking about our next issue. Um, and basically, uh, you know, th it's one of those things that's sort of a labor of love of everybody involved. Um, you know, I, I, I came on board a couple issues ago because um, I really liked working with them when um, one of their editors decided to take one of my pieces for publication, and um, it was a delightful process. And in the process, I brought in a couple other uh, writers that um, also contributed to that issue. And, uh, you know, from there, I developed just a really great relationship with the people, um, you know, the people involved with the magazine. And so uh, when the following issue was being planned, I was like, you know, I'd love to uh, I'd love to help you out as, um, you know, as an editor. Um, and, uh, you know, that's uh, I've, I've done two issues at this point as senior editor and, mm -hmm. um, you know, definitely talking about, uh, you know, uh, doing the third one at this point. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, all of us are doing it for free. Um, all of the money we make goes back into the magazine and trying to, um, you know, keep it perpetuated. Um, you know, uh, our um, editor in chief is, uh, you know, uh, that th that was on board when I started. Uh, you know, stepped down because life just, um, you know, was too demanding. Um, and so, you know, stuff it always gets in the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Try to ignore um, it and yeah. Oh, and it never stops happening, you know, nope. um, but uh, but no, then, you know, somebody else stepped up and they were delightful to work with. So, I mean, yeah, at the moment, um, you know, I'm perfectly thrilled to continue working with them. Um, you know, I, I am anticipating at least one more issue. Um, if not, you know, we don't. Um, but, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, you know, it's, it's largely going to depend on what's going on with me, whether I feel passionate about it, because, you know, putting out a magazine is a decent chunk of work, communication. Um, and it's, it's, it's really important that everybody who's directly involved in it is, um, you know, is really on board. Um, if anybody, you know, uh, it's not like, you know, we can threaten to withhold pay if somebody's not, um, yeah. you know, not doing what they're supposed to at that point. It's like, well, you know, we're doing this and it's all coming together because we all want it to come together. Yeah, that's always a problem with voluntary projects. You're, um, you're on the graces of others. And if you aren't on board with each other, if people don't have the same vision, it just falls apart absolutely I've, I've had that with previous projects you know it's one person might have a very strong vision but if people don't share it it just dissipates and becomes a labor you know becomes a chore to do and then it's 
like I said, it's it's a waste of time. Not necessarily a failure, but if you're wasting your time doing something, then why do it? Move on to something. It's all part and of that. When do you recognize it's time to stop working on a project that's you're beating your head against a brick wall? It's time to either put the brakes on or put it to the side or move on completely. So one thing I'll, I'll, I will say is, um, you know, I, I write in a lot of different styles. Um, some things are more, uh, for lack of a better word, serious than others. Um, you know, some, some of my pieces are pretty humorous. Some are really dark and some are very personal. Um, but one thing they all have in common is that when I'm working on them, I care whether or not I actually finish them. Um, if I have a piece that, um, you know, it, it occurs to me that I just don't care if I finish it, um, that's probably a piece I'm going to, you know, move on from if, if only temporarily, you know, maybe mm -hmm. I'll come back to it in a while and be like, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe I'm, I am more interested in this piece again. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've got a whole folder full of pieces that I started and, um, you know, made, you know, so a lot of them I made two pages in, and then I was just like, you know, this idea is not really taken off. It's not really doing what I wanted to do. And I don't know where it's going. Um, sometimes I have 30, 40 pages of a piece. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I decide to move on because, you know, I don't have a real vision for what I'm doing with it. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, so that's kind of that's kind of really the metric is that uh, I have a, a lot of things that I can spend my time on, um, you know, again, family uh, work. Um, I have other I actually have hobbies outside of writing, too. Um, mm -hmm. Like I like to draw um, I DM an ongoing uh, Dungeons and Dragons game with the family. Um, I do play video games, uh, especially with Careful. the kids. You into TTRBGs? Yeah. Um, have, you seen you know, our, have you seen our Roblox content and my buddy's channel? That's what I was doing earlier on, actually. He was on <laughs> Character Creation uh, Session Zero on uh, Buddy's Dragonlance channel. <laughs> Getting oh, really? Actually, we're going to do Raven. We're currently in the middle of a Dragonlance. Um, oh, dear. Yeah, this is going to be another hour of nerdiness. I was going to... <laughs> hope you've got a bit of time to spare. But uh, yeah, we're setting up for uh, a Ravenloft game in September. And we're currently in the middle of uh, Shadow of the Dragon Queen. Okay. That's uh, good. And then uh, I'm currently playing a Call of Cthulhu campaign, Towers <laughs> of the King, which is uh, with another group. It's a lot of fun. Uh, that's, I've tried to explain to people what, how great that is, role-playing games for stressing the imagination. You don't have to be an actor. Um but it's definitely one of the best mediums. And that's another misunderstood one, like horror. Oh, mm -hmm. you're a devil worshiper. Oh, you're stealing babies. Oh, you're doing oh. this. It's like, mate, have you met role players? Calm down. <laughs> oh, man. You're yeah, going to get roped in. I'm just warning you now. You're, you think you've gotten away with just one interview? <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm, ha I'm happy to come back and keep talking. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. wait, actually, in the game, that's uh, just... Set some time to say <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, but no, I mean, yeah. So you know, I, I have other, you know, other interests, mm -hmm. and so you know, one, you know, I do pick and choose my interests. Though I mean, I, I, I really do things, you know, that I feel have value. Um, you know, whether it be you know playing Dungeons and Dragons or being you know DMing the game or um, you know spending time with uh, playing you know painting or playing Mario Kart with the kids. You know, mm -hmm. I like to garden too. Um, you know, all of those things are, are are meaningful and matter to me. And so, you know, basically, my you know if if I have one story um, in front of me and 
it's not worth working on that versus either working on a different story or, you know, hanging out with my kids or, you know, playing a board game mm-hmm. with them or something like that. You know, that, that is that point. That's the big metric that I use is um, if it doesn't matter to me, I don't, you know, I, I, I do tend to move on from there. That's good. It's never permanent either. Oh, yeah. Just um, shift in perspective, refreshing yourself. Like, the old saying is sometimes it changes as good as the rest. Um, Kathleen, just as well, OGL 1.1 didn't come out then, or else you'd be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was that was was a close man. Uh, they, they really kicked themselves in the bum, man. <laughs> silly, silly people. <laughs> <laughs> they never experienced nerd rage before. It's like, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, so what was it, made, um What was it, Drew? And we'll, we'll just finish up with a sort of last question here, because I know I can keep you here for hours, and that's <laughs> I normally set aside an hour for these things. But it's like <laughs> you could be here forever <laughs> if I don't uh, exercise some self self discipline. What was it, Drew? Into the horror genre, and what were you kind of drew you down that rabbit hole, and what were your major influences? So I mean, that one is kind of a, a, a lifelong question. Um, when I was actually really young, um, my uh, um, my parents uh, were pretty permissive in what we watched. I mean, I did, you know, a lot of it was fairly innocuous stuff, you know, 1950s horror. Um, I was a big fan of The Blob, Them, It, The Terror from Beyond Space, a lot of those sort of, you know, classic you know, creature features. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I saw Alien when I was four, um, and, uh, you know, that was actually a really impactful film on me. Um, I watched The Thing and Aliens when I was younger. And at the same time, my, my dad was a pretty big horror fan. And, you know, um, of course, during the 80s, you know, what we now think of as sort of, you know, uh, like the highly conventional horror of like, you know, Stephen King and Dean Koontz. I mean, those were mm-hmm. the main horror presences. And, you know, we had those books in the house uh, you, you know we had almost every stephen king book a huge chunk of coon's books we had peter straub um i think Coons and, gets enough credit oh i think he's got some great stories you know i, I, I think, think he, don't get, he doesn't get the same uh, i don't think he gets the credit for his work yeah he seems and to, he's a he's, very varied writer um absolutely Stephen absolutely. King's very formulaic after a while but mm-hmm. Coons is out there with a lot of his stories um He's got some pretty wild stuff, actually. I mean, I, you know, I, I haven't read him in some time, but, uh, you know, when I was young, I ate I ate those books up. Uh, I read quite a few of them. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, a lot of my my early reading, and, you know, it was honestly, it was also just really cool that, you know, I was like 10, 12, you know, and I was reading, you know, Stephen King and stuff like that. You know, I always felt like there was something a little bit taboo about it that I wasn't yeah, supposed so to forbidden be reading isn't the naughtiness yeah. of it? It's like, he... Um, even though I was totally allowed to read these things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that developed a, a pretty big love for horror. And it was also, honestly, it's it, it was a big part of my relationship with my mom. Um, you know, she, uh, we still watch a lot of horror movies together when we get the chance. It's not nearly as many as we used to. But um, that's like one of the things we do when we get together and have time. Um, but, uh, you know, aside from that, though, um, you know, uh, that was kind of the foundation for it. That's the thing that really kind of made me aspire to be a horror author. And then since then, um, you know, it's hard to, it's sort of hard to pin down a lot of my influences because I read all over the place. Um, but, um, you know, if, if there was any one book I had to say was hugely influential on almost everything I do, it's um, The Trial by Franz Kafka. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, probably my favorite book of all time. I've read it uh, many, many times. Um, you know, I've read uh, a lot of science fiction in the vein of things like, you know, Kurt Vonnegut um, and, uh, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov. Fun, you know, fun little side note, my, my dad actually had Isaac Asimov as a teacher um, mm-hmm. in a science fiction course, which I always envied him that opportunity. Um, but no, uh, you know, more recently, uh, I like the Art and Ale series. I was a time oh, yeah. favorite. I'm kind of detective to me, but that whole idea that you're considered lower than dirt if you're from Earth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I mean, you weren't allowed to travel outside Earth <laughs> to the the better planets who have become <laughs> more evolved, and that that's not even bringing the android aspect of things. <laughs> and the, yep. just some great <laughs> ideas. Oh yeah, yeah, and you know Philip K. Dick's another uh, uh, mm-hmm. one that I I really enjoyed. Um, yeah, more recently, um, Jeff Vandermeer has been a big influence. Um, I'm a huge fan of Annihilation. Um, the first book is another of my favorite books. I've read it mm-hmm. uh, numerous times, and I think the Alex Garland film is actually a tremendous piece of work as well. Um, you know, it's a really unique film. At least started off. I don't know. I might have to disagree with that one. A, a, <laughs> That's a good fair. premise. Got a good premise. Then the step into the the through the sort the of portal, the shimmer, yeah, and then uh, it kind of fell apart, especially towards the end. But then I would say that as well about Arthur C. Two thousand one, sort of say when they took Dave, and the idea was to advance him to the monolith. Mm-hmm. That did not play out well on the movie. No, that did not. <laughs> did not play it well. Nobody got it. If you hadn't read the book. Nobody like it just didn't uh didn't translate well. So sometimes uh we talked about Barker on the show mm-hmm. quite a lot, like recently we're doing Rawhead Rex um a couple of weeks' time. What were absolutely fantastic stories don't necessarily play out well on screen. Oh yeah. It starts uh, in a pattern there, so it's you know, it could just be the medium, might necessarily take away from the story, which is why folks you need to get out and read as well. Mm-hmm. Don't just look at the screen, get out and actually read a book let your, let your imagination fill in the banks don't have the expectation but something else is put out in front of you that's why we need more creators uh, and suppose yeah. last question just to wrap it up what's what's in the near future for you uh so what's coming up uh, that people need to get uh, ready for well, I got a couple of things. Um, first off, you know, the, the biggest thing coming up is um, that my my science fiction horror novel, Gala Talk, comes out um, either the last week in August or the first week in September. And I am really excited about that. Um, you know, uh, if you're a fan of um, island horror, um, it uh, does have a particularly exciting horror location, which is um, the island of Gali Otok on the Mediterranean Sea. It was home to a Yugoslavian uh, prison um, that hosted pro- uh, political prisoners of the 16,000 people sentenced there. Uh, over 4,000 died from disease, exposure, malnutrition, um, and uh, torturous brutality. Um, my grandfather actually uh, spent some time there, which is how, um, as, a, as, a, as an inmate, which is how it kind of came across my radar. But um, yeah, I'm really excited to, to have that book um, coming up. Other than that, um, you got a bunch of a uh, bunch of pieces of short fiction on their way out through places like Fusion Fragment, Translu- Translunar Traveler's Lounge, an anthology called Gods and Globes. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm working on uh, my next novel at this point. Um, 
you know, I've got uh, a really strong start on it. So I'm about a third of the way into the main draft. And um, I know exactly what I'm doing with this one, which is funny because I'm usually somebody who describes themselves as a pantser instead of a planner. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this one, I really I really know exactly what I'm, I want to do in it. And um, I think it's, a, it's both an intricate and unusual piece that I'm, I'm really excited to work on. Oh, excellent. Right, folks. Obviously, links in the description. Check out Andrew and his work. Give him some support, like all our creators. You know, I mean, it's you guys that make us happen. Give, uh, help give everyone a boost. We need more creators out there, not less. And uh, share love, Andrew. Thank you very much for coming on and having a chat. This is wonderful as always. Love just chewing the fat, going on tangents. <laughs> no structure just <laughs> loosely based that's that's what we love here and as it should be uh, thanks for uh stepping up and of course folks for segments i guess and all our other segments i mentioned uh if you like role playing check out <laughs> our call of Cthulhu series and uh, uh other games we've played and of course do the type of clicky things keep it creepy keep it horrific <laughs>